Nicole Fisher's world fell apart when she was two years old and she began to experience psychological and physical abuse by her mother. My parents got divorced um, for good reason when I was very young. And there was, uh, as you mentioned, some uh, psychological and physical abuse that went on for years. And uh, so my dad got custody of me at two. Fisher's dad worked three jobs and despite his best efforts, had little idea how to bring up a daughter, but he had the help of her grandparents and many other relatives. Her chaotic childhood left Fisher with a deep hunger to understand people and a passion for health and human rights. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is Nicole Fisher, president of the consulting firm Health and Human Rights Strategies. Fisher is a global health and policy contributor to Forbes and the founder and curator of the think tank A Seat at the Table. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, to say that you had a rough childhood is a bit of an understatement. Tell us what happened. Sure. It's not something I talk about very often, uh, but yes, my childhood was, I think, uh, tumultuous is a word. Uh, I had a wonderful family, a very big, loving family, uh, but my parents got divorced um, for good reason when I was very young. And there was, uh, as you mentioned, some uh, psychological and physical abuse that went on for years. And uh, so my dad got custody of me at two. We moved to be near his family. I was born in Louisiana, but we moved to Missouri where his family was. And over the years, there were lots of custody battles, lots of court dates, um, lots of instances of having to choose which parent to live with. Uh, I, of course, chose my father, but the court's uh, system really believed, uh, particularly back in those days, that children, girls in particular, should be with their mother. And uh, I, I respect the mindset, and yet we had uh, loving, you know, my father is the greatest guy in the world. Uh, his family is just so kind and warm. I had no problem uh, helping to to raise and step in when he needed help, uh, and and yet um, kept having to strike this balance of being sent to stay with her or live with her, and then uh, either getting dropped off and being left, and or uh, my dad having to come get me. It was just constant motion. In fact, uh, I joked that I used to go to school at least every third day because my father was a fireman with a backpack and a duffel bag, an overnight bag, and more nights than that, uh, just because whoever dropped me off in the morning was not who I was going to be leaving with at the end of the day. Uh, so I grew up in you know, a very hectic sort of lifestyle, and yet I think I can say uh, with complete honesty that uh, it had lots of pieces of normalcy. Uh, my family, like I said, was very close and they all live in one town. So <laughs> I had the, the opportunity to be very close to lots of aunts and uncles and cousins. Well, I guess you did have that village. Yes. I think that actually, uh, when I think about my childhood, I think that saying is the perfect application. It, it took a village. 
So you saw your mother often, even though uh, there was this physical abuse, and you wound up going to court a bunch of times when you were young, right, for these custody wars. We did. I don't remember all of them, and there were obviously instances that didn't involve me, but I, I seem to recall my dad once saying something about they had gone to court maybe 14 times by the time I was seven or eight. Uh, it was. It felt as a child like it was just constantly something that hung there, uh, and I never really understood why. Um, I, I couldn't understand that need to fight. Uh, I think it was really about winning. I don't think it was about um, providing care or or wanting to have a child around all the time. It, it felt much more uh, like it was simply a matter of. I don't want you to to have her. <laughs> and when you went back, I guess, on weekends and stuff to see your mother, mm -hmm. did you still experience abuse? I mean, how, what were you getting when you went? It depended. There are many times she was so loving and kind and affectionate, and there were other times she was the opposite. Uh, I, and, and I think that actually at its core is part of that underlying instability. It wasn't just whether my grandma was picking me up from school or my aunt or I was going to walk home with cousins, uh, I think it was really a not knowing which sort of personality you were going to get. And, and that instability created, you alluded to this in the introduction, I, I think it really created a need for me to have uh, predictability in my life and to uh, understand why, what were those triggers, what, what was within my control, what wasn't. And uh, I also, you know, had a psychologist when I was younger, probably 10, 11, who was fantastic. And, and that was something that I remember her very vividly working with me to understand, which was there are adult things I cannot control and there are things I can control. And at that age, there's not a lot you, <laughs> you can control. Uh, and, and so when things happened, to sort of go within myself and say, you know, this is not something I have the ability to change. Uh, it's sort of a live through it. <laughs> you can't go around it. Uh, and, and that was, I'm very thankful again for an outlet that gave me resources and helped me understand to the best of my uh, cognitive ability at the time what was happening around me. Was there any one day or any one event or anything that kind of best summed up the chaos of your uh, surroundings and how you coped with it? To be honest, I don't know that I had one coping mechanism. And if I did, it was, <laughs> I'm still guilty of it today, overcommitting. Uh, I, what I, what I took to doing very young was committing myself to as many things as humanly possible so that I didn't have to be home. Uh, and, or I had to be at a practice, I had to be at a lesson, I had to be cleaning my room for this or that. I, I always found things to do to keep myself busy and occupied uh, so that there, there wasn't sort of free time for conflict to arise. So what was your ultimate uh, path out of the situation? Well, um, <laughs> college, I guess. I think that's really it. I think I knew at a pretty young age I was not going to be a professional athlete or 
professional dancer or singer or any of those things. And uh, although no one in my family had finished college, uh, my dad was adamant from the time I was very, very young that I would go to college and that is sort of going to be my, my future. I didn't plan to be an academic at all. Uh, I thought I would be some kind of doctor, but I knew when looking at my horizon that, that school was going to be an anchor in my life. And so uh, I worked very hard and luckily I love reading and I'm a very, very curious person. And so school was something I threw myself into, but I also enjoyed. And so when I turned, I think, 18, and my birthday falls right at the end of the school year. So as I was uh, you know, sort of in the last month or two of school, graduating, moving to college, I made the decision to uh, end that relationship. I knew I was moving away, and I wanted to start college fresh. Um, and I didn't have it all figured out by any means, but I did know there were certain aspects of uh, that, you know, pre-18 youth um, childhood that I just didn't want to take with me into that next phase. So then how did you get your life together? What did you end up doing? <laughs> Is it really ever together? Uh, life, I think, for me became as predictable as humanly possible. And I did that in a number of ways, uh, particularly you know, looking back, it's very obvious the patterns that arose, but before I even finished uh, college, well, I was psychology and biology major. I wanted to understand human behavior. I wanted to understand people. I thought I would end up in neuroscience. Uh, but before I graduated, I had already applied and been accepted as going to get a master's. Uh, and the same, before I finished the master's degree, I applied and was headed you know, to a doctoral program. And so I, I ensured that at least on the academic front, I always knew a year in advance what was next, where I was going, what I would be taking. I tried to make the pathway as smooth as possible. And I I think I did the same in my personal life. I was very fortunate to have um, met a, a man very young, I guess, <laughs> early early 20s, and we were together. Uh, we did all the right things, uh, I guess, if you want to say it that way, which you know, we dated and got engaged and married, bought a house, uh, all those responsible things. And I, I think now, uh, it's really easy to see looking back that from 18 to mid-20s uh, into late-20s, I, I was doing everything in my power to keep life as stable and predictable as humanly possible. All those things I couldn't control, <laughs> I was trying to control. And then it fell apart. And then it fell apart. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, well... Within a short window of time, uh, I was nearing the end of my doctorate, and my uh, husband and I decided to get divorced, and my dissertation chair passed away. Uh, he knew it was inevitable, um, but once his cancer came back, it was, it was pretty, pretty rapid. Uh, and so I realized within you know, a few-month window, I had no idea what the hell I was doing personally or professionally. I decided to see if all the time I had spent <laughs> in school 
uh, becoming, right, this thing, obsessing over neuroscience policy, the healthcare system, I decided to go see if I could do it. And I, and I sort of just walked away from everything at once. And actually, I, I literally walked away from everything at, at one time. I moved to DC and I got a tiny little place in a basement <laughs> and, <laughs> and the healing of sorts started. <laughs> but that must have been pretty bleak to be in that basement and to recognize that you were back to square one. Oh, it, it, it felt like behind square one. Uh, I, I think square one would have been a really great starting place. <laughs> now, I, I think at the time I believed I was at square one, but in retrospect, no, I wasn't. And there, I think it's actually was really nice. A couple of years later, when I left that place and got this uh, beautiful, tiny apartment, but it was all windows, I remember thinking how spectacular <laughs> it was that I was, you know, I had to spend a couple years in the basement, <laughs> like figuring it all out, putting the pieces together, my head down. And then when I was ready, I'm like, look at all this sunlight. Look at floor to ceiling windows. Who knew? And I, I just, I thought my housing situation very nicely paralleled what I was going through. And it was unintentional, but, but lovely. So how did you rebuild your career? Well, I don't even know that it was rebuild. I tend to think of it, uh, I frame it a bit differently. And that is... I think to get to where I am now, it took all the pieces. It's um, kind of like a, a toolkit. I think the years of education in, in one area, I built up a lot of skills and tools. I think then doing a master's degree in policy, I brought in another set of tools. I think that uh, move, the doctoral work, then the move to DC, I knew I was resilient. But again, you know, I think that's a skill set, and I don't think it's a skill set I had I had applied in in several years, and uh, so by the time I started to think about my career, my future, uh, I think what I was doing was really pulling all those tools together, and actually starting. So in a way, it it, it kind of looked like a second act, but I really think it was maybe the first act. The first time I was doing the things I wanted to do. I also had some wonderful mentors who took risks in allowing me to do writing, to speak, to take on some projects. I mean, I, I worked relentlessly, but without those advocates and those mentors, uh, I, you know, opportunities aren't just available, particularly in places like Washington, D.C. And so... It, again, it, it kind of took a village, uh, but I love the way all my previous experiences and tools came sort of crashing together, uh, and I found where I knew I was really happy. And that even if even if there wasn't a paycheck attached, my heart was was happy and whole, and and I felt full. So what fulfilled you the most? I know you were traveling a lot abroad and doing a lot of work in developing countries at the time. Mm -hmm. Yes. I knew it sounds really vague to say helping people, but I do find that when I help, um, and I'm particularly on a, on a broad scale, 
I don't need recognition. I don't need to be the, the leader, but just the knowing there's been improvement. Lives got better, healthier, longer. Uh, those sorts of things just, they, they really, like I said, they make, they make my heart come alive. And those first few trips, I think it was really difficult to come home to be honest. I think because so much had happened here, and like anyone, we're all human, we all get caught up in our own day to day, um, to sort of pause and take two months and go work in clinics in India and um, Nepal and, and other places where I first started, just it, it got me out of not only my day to day, but the day to day issues I was dealing with. So for example, on Capitol Hill, you know, even with the Affordable Care Act, what we were really doing was debating insurance reform. And so to, to stop that daily put on a suit and go talk about shuffling pieces of paper around, I, I was literally, you know, <laughs> sleeves rolled up, as they say, working in a system, trying to teach people the absolute basics, trying to work through all kinds of barriers that exist that we in the U.S. don't think twice about because they're not the kinds of problems we deal with. And, and that is where I think I started really seeing what my priorities were and that actually many of those problems that I was dealing with overseas, they're right here in the U.S., uh, I just had to open my eyes a little more and I had to have more experiences and I had to see how in many ways they're the same. They just look different. We have lots of food insecurity in this country. There are plenty of children that do not know where their next meal is going to come from. There are plenty of homeless, unsheltered. There are still unbanked people in the U.S., people who do not have bank accounts, meaning they don't have access to so many other things. And so to see how those problems are being solved from tiny villages to major cities like Dhaka uh, and, and bring those skills back, that, that was where I started to really find that sweet spot of how do people behave and how do the healthcare you know, and all the other systems work? And then how do we, how do we invoke change that actually meets people where they are? And isn't just a bunch of people in, a, in an office <laughs> talking, talking to each other about their problems. And you're kind of seeing a lot of those problems laid bare now with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, including here in the U.S., you know, and it, it feels like all of the work you've been doing, all of that resilience you built, everything you learned is allowing you now to understand sort of the psychological uh, and other barriers here with this huge uh, threat that we're facing, um, how, how do you see that? Well, the timing, uh, particularly of us having this conversation, couldn't be any better. I mean, we are in the thick of it right now. Uh, and I believe this is a problem, in, uh, the coronavirus in particular, I think it's something we've been dealing with a little bit longer than the time frame we're, we're giving people. Uh, just, I think, because of the nature of the virus and the number of people age, you know, previous underlying health conditions, I think there were probably cases that we didn't recognize. The flu season this year has been exceptionally bad. And so I, I actually think that uh, it's, it's a problem we've had longer than we've known. That said, when it comes to um, these underlying issues, when it comes to access to care, 
when it comes to things like infectious disease, I mean, the truth is, are we seeing something different? Yes. Are we seeing something different? No. I would guarantee that anyone who works in global health can give you a list of 20 different examples in the last, you know, 100 years of things that we've been dealing with from Zika to Ebola to honestly, the flu, influenza A in particular this year, I mean, it, it kills a lot of people. And so being able to have any kind of impact in that space, again, whether it's prolonging life, improving life, it's, it feels good. It also always feels like you're you're plugging one hole in the dam and you know the whole thing could break at any moment. It can be very fulfilling and very frustrating at the same time. You also have a framework for thinking about the coronavirus in terms of behavioral change, you know, just because of your deep interest in human behavior. What is that framework in terms of how people make decisions? Well, I think the starting position of thinking about any framework is that people are not rational. <laughs> we are rational, but only in the sense of what is in front of us and what we're dealing with at the time. And so when I think about how to make even small changes uh, in a particular clinic, all the way to how do we lay something out at, at a country level, it really comes down to meeting people where they are uh, mentally, where they are emotionally, where they are physically, obviously, geographically, but also where they are financially. Uh, there's a lot of circulating rumors going around here in the US and, and all over the world about quarantines, lockdowns, those sorts of things. And I believe you, know, you always try and play out as many unintended consequences as you possibly can. You don't want to waste time in unlimited scenarios, but you know how people are going to behave when you do something like lock them down. There are plenty of parallels to prison. It's something you do to people uh, without necessarily engaging them. And when that happens, people react. We saw it in Liberia with Ebola. People protest. They riot. And in cases like this, when you don't want people congregating and spreading a highly infectious uh, disease, we have to really think through some of those answers that at face value may be very simple. Like, well, if we tell everyone to stay home and they don't have a choice, they won't you know, spread the disease. That's not how it works. People don't <laughs> necessarily take kindly, uh, particularly Americans, to being told what to do, um, certainly not with threat of military force. And we find other ways. We always, you know, we're human. We always find ways around the system. <laughs> uh, what about the whole social distancing phenomenon? Uh, I think had I been consulted uh, about how to communicate what we need people to do, I would have done it differently. I think social distancing makes sense to people. At the same time, I think it, it's, it misses the mark. I would have branded it something like physical distance social connection. Uh, we live in a world of unlimited possibilities for connection. I mean, there's social networks. We can socially connect in so many different ways, uh, but it's the physical distance that we need 
to stop the transmission. And so I, I think there is a, a bit of a missed opportunity there to get buy-in from people and to get them to understand and participate. Uh, because if you tell them they have to be physically distant, but you need them to socially connect, I think there, there'd be a lot more compliance and voluntary um, well, compliance with, with what you're, you're hoping for. You know, there's unprecedented disruption because of coronavirus, particularly in children's lives, right? Schools are closed, colleges are closed, and, and we're all kind of dealing with that as parents and, as, uh, and having children. And I mean, you grew up in a state of constant chaos, disruption, unpredictability. I mean, to the point that you didn't know which house you were going to be in, uh, what porch you were going to be standing at. I mean, what advice do you have for parents who are now dealing with these disrupted lives for themselves and for their children? First, I would say cut yourself some slack. Uh, you, we are all in a place that we didn't plan for. All of our lives have been disrupted. Uh, many people have a lot of competing demands at the moment that involve spouses and children and activities at home, work, you know, so, so be kind to yourself, give yourself a break. But um, beyond that, I think it's important for parents to, to the things we've been talking about up until now, you know, children thrive with predictability. Uh, their brains aren't finished developing until their mid twenties. And so any change to their structure uh, causes them all kinds of, of conflict. Um, and it's not their own, you know, it's not their fault. They're, they're children, they're going through change. It's going to disrupt their routine and that is going to be expressed. It's going to be expressed in different ways depending on the child. I mean, their brain is literally in real time trying to process something that we as adults are struggling to process. And so I think it's important for parents to also be, you know, be gracious towards their children they're struggling and that's okay. This is what builds resiliency. Kids are so resilient. They're going to get through this. They're going to learn. They're going to adapt. That's what they do better than we do by far. But, you know, give them, give them a bit of leeway. They're, they're trying to figure out a, a new sort of state of the world and state of the state. And, and that is really difficult for them until there's a routine that makes sense. Given your knowledge of the U.S. healthcare infrastructure and, you know, the bureaucracies and the limitations, as well as the strengths, uh, what are your biggest concerns and what do you think needs to be done to get us past this crisis? I cannot speak for all Americans, certainly, uh, but I feel as though I can answer that much better domestically than, than globally because every culture is very different. But Domestically, I think if we're not there yet, Americans are going to reach a place in the very near future where the politicization of this virus is going to be exhausting. Uh, politics has brought us to a point, the division in the country has brought us to a point where people are exhausted. They tune out uh, or they're very quick to anger. Uh, they're very quick to taking up sides and arguing, not listening. And when it comes to something like a virus, it has no political party. It has no 
color. It has no it, it has no differentiation at all about your income level, your geographic location. And so when people are hungry for information, and I think it's safe to say uh, the faith that Americans have in their institutions, academia, science, unfortunately, politics, um, that's been eroding. It's been eroding consistently for years. And in a situation like this, I can't imagine a worse scenario than people not trusting the experts who have been put into place. And the longer the political theater goes on, I think the more upset Americans are going to get that they're not being fed the information they need to take care of themselves, take care of their families, take care of their neighbors and loved ones and communities. And so uh, I, I hope one of the positives to come out of this is that people will connect with those around them and that they will demand that the government has to start putting the American public, and that's why it's called public health, uh, above partisan politics because it, it's doing so much damage to the message, to uh, resources, and, and we're all going to suffer because of it. Looking back at that uh, two-year-old girl and that eight-year-old girl who was in family court 14 times <laughs> and, you know, who didn't know where she would be sleeping every day or waking up every day and looking at where you are today and the work that you're doing, what would you say to that child and to that young girl about how, your journey and, and sort of where you're going? Oh, I don't want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think first I would tell that young person, all the things that happen in life, learn from them, roll with them, adapt. Uh, the word we used earlier, resiliency, will get built even in the hard times. And it, you know, what doesn't kill you <laughs> will, will make you stronger. And all those lessons learned will make you better at what you want to do when you're older. Because I, I think to a fault at times, empathy is something that, that just runs very deeply inside me. Uh, <laughs> like I said, to a fault. Sometimes I get really caught up in, in you know, certain, well, you mentioned coronavirus. This is a great example of, uh, I think it made quite a few newspapers that New York uh, was struggling to decide whether they should or should not close schools due to the sheer number of young people in New York schools that do not have a home or a, you know, a home that is stable or food. And they kept the schools open additional days just to feed children. And in those types of situations, uh, my empathy can get the better of me because it frustrates me to no end. And it makes me angry to know that we have solutions. There are resources. If we can feed people in other countries, if we can make clean water, on island nations that have absolutely no access to clean water. If we can do it there, we can do it here. And we should, and we should be able to do it easier, faster, better. And so I get very um, passionate about those sort of underlying human rights uh, issues. And, and they're very complex problems. They can <laughs> take up a lot of space in your head trying to work through and around them. But uh, I would tell her that 
it, it's all going to be useful in the future. Did you, I know you said you haven't been in touch with your mother since you were 18. Did you ever tell her the hurt that she caused physically and psychologically? And will you ever? I did to the best of my ability. Uh, very few people in the world know this until now. Uh, I, when I decided I was finished with the relationship, I wrote a letter and it was very lengthy. Uh, we were writing front and back pages when I was a teenager. And I, and I just started writing all the things I remembered. And I think it was very cathartic for me so that even as I got older, I knew, again, back to the empathy. You know, I knew I would question the decision. And I always felt like I knew I would want a mother. Um, I felt like it was unfair that I hadn't gotten one, that I well, the kind that I had, I should have probably had. Uh, but I took that letter that was just basically a laundry list of the things I remembered having done to me, and I put it in an envelope and I left it under her windshield wiper on her car, and that was it. <laughs> I, I really had to uh, close that chapter. Do you know if she read it? I assume so based on uh, something she said to uh, my younger sister much later in life. <laughs> my sister conveyed something to me that uh, my takeaway was it was red. <laughs> well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your amazing story. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry, I'm a little choked up there. <laughs> I'm very good at uh, observing and trying to explain other people's behavior, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> reflecting on your own is sometimes <clears throat> very necessary and yet um, makes you explore things you, you don't often uh, explore. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate you and, and I appreciate this, this podcast and, and I'm amazed at the number of inc absolutely incredible people uh, that you get to open up and, and share uh, their adversity because it really is the way forward. Thank you. Nicole Fisher is president of Health and Human Rights Strategies, her Washington, D.C.-based consulting firm. Fisher is a global health and policy contributor to Forbes and the founder and curator of the think tank, A Seat at the Table. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.